All right, so let's get started. Your outline should say eight essential elements of the biblical Christian gospel series. And it should then say element seven previewed the pattern of five first steps into the kingdom of Christ. So um, we've been on this series called Eight Essential Elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel. This is the 80th week, so we've been on it a little over a year and a half now. And um, we are uh, in a day, you know, the the general trajectory or direction of of Bible-believing Christianity in the last 200 years, and uh, with and it's kind of accelerating the pace, like gr- gradually. So that really picked up a little bit after the Civil War for a number of reasons. The 1890s again, the 1920s, then shortly after World War II. But the general direction has been to simplify, simplify, simplify the gospel. But there's also been uh, an introduction of Gnostic ideas and, and, and a number of reductions in the gospel as it's spoken. So what we're really trying to do is look at the gospel f- quite completely. And the reason for it is the gospel, uh, most people think of the gospel as something you just pray to get to get your Christian life started, to pray the sinner's prayer to, in, in the misuse of the word saved, to get saved and which they should be meaning to get born again and converted or receiving Christ. But uh, most people think it's just for that. But as we're trying to bring out, and, and we brought out in the f- element zero, the, the gospel is for every day. You have to reposition yourself according to the gospel and walk with God every day, asking God to deepen your awareness of your sin to increase your understanding of his greatness and his majesty. You know, when we say magnify the Lord in in the Psalms and songs, magnification doesn't change the actual size of anything. It just adjusts our ability to see what's always been there. And because of our sin and our finiteness, even if we weren't sinners, we would inevitably see God for less than who he is because we're finite. And then you add the darkness of sin to that. Part of the Christian journey is having our eyes opened uh, scripturally and experientially all the time to a bigger and bigger and bigger God who's who he was all the time. We just couldn't see him. So we kind of covered that in in essential element zero. And uh, what what I decided to do after we finished uh, the... The in Roman numeral one there for anyone who's new is the list of the eight elements. And when we got to the end of element six, I hadn't anticipated this series being that quite this long. So I just decided to spend eight, nine, ten weeks, something like that, reviewing what we've covered so far before we do element seven and eight. However, last week we got through reviewing uh, all the way from element zero to six, which we've done seven weeks on. So this week we're actually reviewing element seven, even though we actually haven't done element seven yet in the series. So I'm calling it previewing element seven. seven. So Roman numeral two, we, uh, seven messages goes, we looked at an element zero, why the gospels for all of life, which we just touched on a minute ago. Why, uh, why you need to know when you're working with people if they've been pre-evangelized or not. Uh, most people who've grown up in Bible-believing evangelical churches that have prayed the sinner's prayer and think of themselves as, as a Christian, one of the things you have to be careful of is people are kind of trained in our culture to be somewhat defensive. But most people that are in that position actually know very little about the gospel and have never read the whole books of the Bible and certainly never read the whole Bible and never thought about big things of the Bible and, and really thought through the gospel very deeply and so forth. And consequentially, uh, a lot of times people aren't fully converted. You know, we talk a lot about biblically complete conversions and helping people get to a biblically complete conversion. And that's kind of a necessary ingredient because what Jesus never asked the church to go and make many decisions of all men, but to make disciples of all men. And getting converted more completely is the first stepping stone into actually being what the, uh, the Christian life is, uh, that is being a, a radical disciple of Jesus Christ. You know, in Dallas Willard's book that we use called uh, 
the subtitle is Reclaiming the Essential Teachings of Jesus about Discipleship. What's the full title? Uh, the Great Omission. Uh, what he basically is arguing for is that we have made, uh, we have kind of told people that you can pray a sinner's prayer, go to church, uh, and go to. And the whole point is to try to not go to hell and go to heaven. And the Bible is not trying to save you from hell; it's trying to save you from sin and yourself and much deeper issues. That hell is just the outworking of, of a life not saved from those things. And what Dallas Willard is bringing out is there's no basis in the scripture for a kind of Christianity that's not discipleship. And what we've kind of done is we've turned uh, praying the sinner's prayer for everyone, and discipleship is this optional extra, and that's just not scriptural. And that's, you know, thousands and thousands are kind of caught up in this idea that I can be sort of one foot in the door of Christianity and and uh, I, I don't have to become a, a disciple of Jesus Christ. And that's just not scriptural nor defendable from scripture. All right, so we six messages ago, we looked at the essential attributes of God. We talked about what a worldview is and how everyone has one. Uh, we talked about the fact that people are inescapably worshipers and they're inescapably addictive and they're inescapably religious because we're made in the image of God. And uh, so... Um, when you're trying to help people, one of the things you want to be very cognitive of and very aware is uh, point Roman number 3b there. Our contemporary Christian climate has a very reduced vision of who God is. And almost all Christians are being held back by that. They haven't really been taught how to think about what's called the non-communicable attributes of God, his omnipresence, his omniscience his uh, immutability, his eternal nature, and so forth. And uh, it inevitably affects the way you approach life if God is not as big as he needs to be in your heart. So one of the best things you can do for someone, uh, you know, at Wright State, Deanna and some others uh, went through... Uh, with uh, someone who was at the time newer to our church, had been around for a while, quite a while now, but they went through a, a book, uh, I guess for a semester or so, on the attributes of God. I would really encourage you, if you haven't read, you know, there's several we use. Uh, I like I like uh, Tozier's one that we use. But if you haven't read a book on the attributes of God, you owe it to yourself to read a good book on the attributes of God and ask God to open your eyes to uh, a bigger vision of who he is. Uh, five min messages ago, we looked at the essential attributes of man, and uh, in terms of expressing that as a worldview, or three three biblical essential elements of man, and uh, one of the things we stressed there was um, uh, two of the things that are most denied in our culture is just that man is created in God's image, and that's why we have abortion, abortion euthanasia. Uh, it's one of the reasons why teenage suicide is one of the highest causes of death in our culture. And uh, so, uh, understanding the Imago Dei, that we were made in, in the image of God, and therefore, some guy that's not that easy to relate to, that's a drunk in the gutter and maybe combative or whatever, is worth investing hours and hours in. Because God loves him. And God values that person. And, you know, all God requires of us in terms of giving back is just pay it forward. You know, freely you are given, Jesus says, freely give. Whatever God has given to you, make sure you're giving that away. And uh, he will entrust more to you when you do that. The other thing is the, is the man's fallenness. Part of what's coming out of antinomianism that leads to legalism, which we can't redevelop, we've done taught on that hundreds of times, but part of what comes out of a legalistic view of sin is kind of, uh, well, I'm not stealing cars, and I'm not addicted to alcohol or drugs or pornography or so forth, so I'm basically a pretty good Christian. I just need a little churching up. And, you know, I don't care if you grew up in the church and you've never even stolen a piece of bubble gum. And you can only think of three times that you lied to your mother or whatever, and you always got good grades or whatever. We all need to see the depth of our sin. 
because Romans 5.20 says, where grace abounds, sin abounds, uh, where sin abounds, <laughs> twisting the scriptures around, uh, get the backwards message, uh, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And uh, the more you see the depth of your depravity, the more you'll uh, be able to be humble enough to receive more of Christ. And you'll see the depths of his grace. One of the things you always want to be praying for is God, take me out of levels of self-deception, denial, excuse-making, blame-shifting, rationalizing, things that keep me from seeing me how you see me. And we've, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis addressed this in his book, The Problem of Pain, in the late 1950s. We became, became a culture where we define love as all encouragement, all approbation, all acceptance, all way to go, that a boy, praise you, all the time, and so most people are fairly defensive when it comes to confrontation, and real love is to help people see the hard things and the painful things about ourselves that we need to see. So you want to learn how to do that with as much grace as possible. If you're not familiar with that concept, go to Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6, where it says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned as it were with salt. And conduct yourself with wisdom toward outsiders so you know how to respond to each person. You know, the real trick of loving people is to help them understand you're on their side enough to help them look at some very painful things to look at about ourselves, right? And that we need a rescue effort. And uh, we don't need just a little churching up. We don't need a little counseling. We don't need a program. We need a radical conversion and a whole new being. And, you know, lots of people are trying to overcome sin in moralistic, programmatic ways, but it'll just never get to the root of it. You have to uh, exchange your life for his life. You have to become a new creation in Christ. And that has to be a powerful transaction that, you're, that all things become new. Notice he doesn't make all new things. He makes all things new. Very different. Very important. Now, uh, so like, mag help God, you know, ask God to help you magnify and clarify for yourself and for anyone you love the depth of our own depravity. And there's a time when it's really important to focus on that for yourself. Uh, you know, where instead of taking the speck out of your brother's eye, you really focus for one, two, three years, however long, to really get understand the log in your own eye. And there's nothing you can do better for, your, for God, yourself, your fellow man, than have God show you the fullness of the log in your eye. It's scary, it's painful, it's humbling, but it's uh, your very salvation. Uh, four messages ago, we looked at the Ten Commandments, the multiple purposes of God's law. I, uh, for lack of time, I don't really want to review that too much. Uh, antinomianism versus theonomy and so forth. Um, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it and to empower us to be law keepers instead of law breakers. And uh, so, and the law becomes our tutor to lead us to Christ. The reason law is so important is it helps us see our sin, so we see that we need more than reformation. We, we, we need new birth. Three messages ago, we looked at why uh, all presentations of the gospel in the, in the book of Acts, in the New Testament in general, contain a lot about the history of Israel where no American presentations ever contain that. And it's not just because they were closer to, the, to coming out of the Israelites. It, without that, you don't have the full gospel. We looked at why that was. And we looked at why uh, all presentations of the gospel in the Bible have warnings of coming judgment. When that's not a popular theme today, uh, that won't get you a big church. Uh, but there's no, you can't find any presentations of the gospel in Acts that don't include a lot about both of those things. Okay, so, um, you know, and one of the, you know, Paul says, if we judged ourselves rightly, then we would not be judged. Half of the crud we go through in life 
is because we don't allow the Holy Spirit and the scriptures and our brothers and sisters and community to help us see ourselves correctly. And so God has to take us. You know, I always say you have to be illusioned in the first place to become disillusioned. And when you have unreality in your life and heart, your, your life will crash on the rocks of reality. And that's the best loving thing for you. When your life starts falling apart all around you, that's when you have a moment where you can really come into Christ for real for the first time. So uh, we looked at that uh, so that we could help see that we need a rescue not a re- and a regeneration, not a reformation. We looked at uh, the fact that Christ fulfills the law and he fulfills, he is Israel. He fulfills everything about Israel. And the idea of just coming to Christ by yourself, but not becoming part of the people of God, which has become, you know, one of the fastest growing movements in America is the unchurched church. People who say, I'm born again, and I attend church 20 to 40 times a year, and I'm kind of consumed, like I go to church because they have a good speaker and good, good music, and I don't really serve there much, I don't give much, I'm not accountable much, I don't live in a in a way that's how families live together. And, you know, I, I don't give, take, and serve. I'm not part of the lifestyle. Um, I, it's just something I do to, to kind of do my little bit of religious duty so I can kind of help quiet my conscience so I don't have to take God too seriously. And so um, when you see the history of Israel... And the church coming out of it and how God always, with Noah, well, of course, with Adam first, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the way through, God always has a remnant, and the new move of God always comes out of the remnant and always out of the old move of God. So in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, for instance, about 3% of the Jews returned from the captivity to rebuild Jerusalem and and the temple and so forth, but but what they did benefited all Jews scattered throughout Alexander's former empire, which became the Roman Empire shortly thereafter, um, and so forth. And so um, you always have the, whatever God is doing, there will only be a small number of people who want to go. Uh, but it will have a spillover effect that's positive for all of God's people. And um, that's really important to see. Element uh, five, which is, uh, we did two messages ago, I guess. Uh, I should be saying messages, not weeks, because we skipped two weeks at Christmas and New Year's. We Those were both on a Sunday, so we had our 1030 worship, but not the 930. Um, we looked at Christology for about 30 weeks, uh, because everything falls and arises on the question, who do you say that I am? Who Christ is in your mind, heart, and your knowledge of him determines everything about how you view reality. He is the way, the reality, and the life. Um, And all of us are on a journey into Christ as if we're Christians. And that's a journey out of the unreality, self-deception, denial, and everything that we lived in into more and more truth and reality. That's what sanctification and maturation in Christ are. Uh, So, let's see. The last message, we reviewed what it means to receive Jesus. Uh, We used the verse there that, uh, but to all who did receive him, Lombano uh, has received, uh, who believe in his name, he gave the right that is power and authority and combined in one word in Greek. Uh, exousia means both power and authority. We don't have one word in English that could really do exousia in one word. Um, so that's why you'll get some translations that'll say power and some that'll say authority there. Um, so he gave us the right to become children of God who are born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of men. So we've been looking, We, I think we looked at 23 weeks, we looked at what it means to receive Christ uh, we looked at the word salvation, saved, and saved. We had the Greek words for them, the verb tense, the adjective tense, and all that. And uh, 
we talked about why that's uh, the most misused word in Christian circles today, because people will say, did you get saved? And what they actually mean is, were you born again and converted? Because, of course, you were saved in the eternal plans of God from all eternity. And various, you know, we could go through that again. Various parts of your salvation came, you know, 6,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, two weeks ago. And uh, you are going to continue to be saved, actually, for all eternity. So um, that that word tends to be misused. It, it really doesn't mean were you born again or converted. Receiving Christ should have two elements, being born again, yeah, that is, you receive not only a new spirit that's now in fellowship with God, but a new heart with new motivations, new attitudes. You know, one of the things you'll find if you're trying to, say, become more disciplined or trying to uh, conquer a certain body of study or whatever, one of the issues that'll go into, like, how good a student you are is your motivation level. And, like, you can't actually motivate yourself to want to know God you have to, that's why you have to be born again, and he has to give you, by his grace, the motivation. It's a free gift to even want to love God, know God, serve God. You know, I often share the experience I had when I was first, you know, reading the Bible and coming, coming out of being a drug addict and, and all this kind of stuff in uh, 1974. And I remember one night reading my Bible, and uh, I was wrestling with, I, you know, just quit smoking marijuana and I was kind of changing friends, and you know, I just you know finished. I was on my second or third time through the New Testament, and and, uh, and uh, I remember turning off the light and sliding under the covers, and and just saying, "Lord, I just want to do what's right. I just want to please you. I just want to know you better, and I just I want to please you." And I actually was so shocked that I had those thoughts coming out of my heart that I sat back up and turned the light back on and went, "What?" I said, "That came out of me." And I realized God had done something that I could never have done. It was, it was a, kind of one of those life-changing moments where I realized, wow, God is putting that in my heart. I'm, I'm actually becoming a Christian, which I had tried to avoid for a long time. Uh, so, um, so, anyway... Um, we talked about regeneration and all the words that go with that, including new birth, born again, made alive, quickened, new creation, and so forth, and uh, that, which is so much more than today's forgiveness-only approach. Um, it's not just new birth, but it's turning, and conversion is all about turning. It's about turning away from self-determination, from self-justification, from seeing things your way, and it's about trust, following Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Scriptures, and even the older brothers and sisters he brings to you to help you begin to see. And uh, it's a turning away from self-lordship and self-determination into Christ actually being Lord. And you start on the lifelong journey from performance-based living to grace-based living. And uh, you exchange your life in eight different ways for his, you're adopted into his family. He not only sets you free from your sins, but he sets you free from a much deeper problem called your sin. Hopefully you know by now the difference, and that's why John the Baptist says the axe is laid at the root. You don't just have a sins problem. Your sins problem grew out of your sin problem. And, uh, and you've become very good at fertilizing and watering and cultivating the roots of that sin problem. That, and that's what made the sins, sins problem grow into such a magnificent tree. <laughs> um, so, uh, then we uh, dealt with the fact that many Christians have never received him, and I'm hoping to touch on that a little bit today and give us some clarification on that. So flip over, and this, now we're into today's stuff. I used way too much time to review, but we had some newer people, and I wanted to make sure they got at least a smattering of it. Uh, all of this is on a, on our podcast, and there's actually a separate place just for this review, so you can kind of get a more thorough presentation of the gospel in only eight messages, if you want. That's what we're kind of going for, for newer Christians that don't want to listen to 120 messages. Um, all right, today we're going to look at element seven. In element seven, we call the pattern of five first steps in the, into the kingdom of Christ, and it's also about... Uh, 
one aspect of what we mean by biblically complete conversions. Now, one of the things you're going to see is that in the New Testament, when people came to Christ, they took five very distinct steps that we're going to hopefully at least touch on each of what they are today, at least explain them a little and introduce them. Then we're going to spend the next 20 or so weeks developing these. And uh, most Christians in the New Testament took these five steps the first day to three days, uh, possibly in a couple cases it took a week. In America today, most Christians uh, who have walked with the Lord sometimes for many, many years have taken zero, one, two, or three of these steps. Very few Christians in America today have taken all five of these steps. And so what that leads to, and uh, by the way, I, if you look at Roman numeral 9 at the top, I listed uh, five examples of people coming to Christ in Acts. And you can study those to see them going through these five steps. And um, so we're going to talk about the problem with what, why that's a problem if you've received zero or one or two of these five steps, but you didn't press in and get all five of these steps at the beginning of your Christian life. It's very much like trying to read without knowing the alphabet. You know, uh, if we said, you know, I want you to read this book, but you can only know seven of the 26 letters. Uh, the rest you have to guess at. <laughs> you know, and that's kind of how most people are conducting their Christian life because they don't know any better. So, uh, and uh, you would probably get to know those seven pretty well, but it'd be hard to form a lot of words. <laughs> you know, it'd just be a mess. So let's, we'll get into that in a minute, but first I want to talk a little bit about this idea of patterns. All of you who come to the Tuesday night Bible study, our most in-depth Bible study, have know that we've been talking about patterns there for the last three or four years. Um, so that's, uh, you're probably going to not need to hear about it again, but some people will need to hear about it again. So what we're trying to do here, of course, at Grace Christian Fellowship is two things. Rediscover through study, seeking, examination, and so forth, and restore a more biblically comprehensive Christianity so that people, because most Christians, Jesus came to give us life and have it more abundantly. The thief came only to kill, rob, and destroy. And most Christians are not experiencing life more abundantly. We know, you know, we know all the statistics that the divorce rates is high among evangelical Christians is in the world. The credit card rate is as high among evangelical Christians as it is in the world, and on and on and on. Most Christians are not being equipped to live a fundamentally blessed covenant lifestyle with God where everything is according to his ways which work. Doesn't mean you won't have any trials, but life will be more congruent. So... Rediscovering, we mean study, search, find, examine, rebuild. Uh, restore, we mean rebuild, reconstruct, and reconstitute. I left actually the rebuilding ones accidentally on the both lines there. Uh, I wish I could explain reconstitution a little bit more. That's something we will get into later in as we go through element seven quite a bit. That's going to be an important word to look at. Um, next, I want to get into the uh, some examples of they kind of understand why there's a primary importance put on this of getting this concept pattern. Most Christians have not been trained to look for major themes when they go through the scripture and to look for patterns. And so if you're not trained to do that, and if you don't know to do that, and if you're not thinking about that all the time, you'll read a lot of different parts of the Bible isolated from the other parts of the Bible. And you'll have a little verse, some verses about prayer and some verses about fasting and some verses about giving and some verses about church and some verses about the gospel and some verses about praise and worship. And all of this will be somewhat disjointed in your thinking. Okay? But the Bible is one book, even though it was written by 40 different men, it was written by one God. It was written on three continents, but it was written by one God over a period of 2,000 years in such a way that he, he created each author, he sanctified each author, he used their personality types and circumstances and so forth to give one congruent message. And we tend to read the Bible in this, kind of like we would read, 
Proverbs or we'd watch Jeopardy is a bunch of isolated facts. And what we need, of course, is to uh, read the Bible in such a way that we look for the major themes, which are Jesus Christ, the King of the kingdom, and his covenant and his desire to have a people that bring his kingdom, in a, who live in covenant community together and bring his kingdom to the earth. And uh, that theme runs from Genesis 1 to Revelation 21, and uh, 22 or 21, I always forget if there's 21 or 22 in Revelation. Um, and, and so um, getting the idea of patterns is, uh, is part of that approach of getting uh, the bigger picture. So here's an example. I, this one I call the prescribed way. First Chronicles 13, 1 through 10. I don't have time to read it all. Uh, read it for yourself. The, if you go back to the uh, first Samuel, uh, Samuel's first prophecy that he was given at the age of eight years old was to Eli. And he told Eli, you're not restraining your sons, Hopney and Phineas. They're going to go into battle. They're going to be uh, killed by the, the, the Philistines. And the ark of God is going to be captured. And God is going to tear down your house. How'd you like to give that to your pastor when you're eight years old? Hi, <laughs> I, I just love you, but I, God's speaking to me that he's going to kill you. But, uh, and, and, and your whole family. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so all this happens, and the Ark of God is captured by the Philistines, and the Philistines have it for a uh, better part of a generation. And finally, God starts to judge the Philistines, with all kinds of things breaking out on their bodies that the King James calls golden hemorrhoids. <laughs> or no, hemorrhoids. They gave back golden hemorrhoids. So, uh, some translations call them tumors. I kind of like the hemorrhoids thing. It's, it's kind of sick and fun. But uh, <laughs> nobody knows exactly what they were. Abscesses, who knows? But uh, the Philistines didn't like them. And so the Philistines get the, they basically say, let's, uh, send the Ark of God back to the Israelites. And the Philistines haven't read the first five books of the Bible, and they don't know Moses. And so they put it on a cart and point the cart towards uh, the Israelites' camp and slap the cows on the butt, and, and they take the cart down to uh, an Israelite village, and all of Israel rejoices. They have the Ark back. And David then decides to bring it up from there to Jerusalem, but he doesn't consult God as to whether he should, that the scriptures make that very clear, or how he should. So uh, this, this is directly analogous, if you know anything about the church growth movement of the late 70s that birthed the mega churches that began in the 80s and 90s, it's a very exact analogy. Uh, they basically applied the Philistines' more modern, better way of doing it, and so he brings the Ark of God on this cart. But that's not how the Ark was supposed to be carried. It was supposed to be carried only by four Levites on, with two poles. And so the cart almost gets upset. And uh, a guy named Uzzah, right? Uzzah reaches out his hand to uh, steady the cart. And God strikes him dead for his presumptuousness that he could help God out. Next time you're wanting to help God out of a situation. Be careful. But, uh, <laughs> and so David is scared of God, and he doesn't, he's mad at God for doing this. He's scared of God, but he doesn't know what, really why this happened. So they leave the cart there at Obed-Edom's house. The problem is, is that the ark of God represents the presence of God and the blessing of God. So Obed starts to get blessed. So David decides, you know, despite the danger here, we got to figure out a way to bring it up to, to my house in Jerusalem and to God's house. So they decide to do this radical idea. They read the Bible. <laughs> Woo! Like, so, uh, you know, then they read the Bible and they find out, oh, we were supposed to carry the ark a whole different way. We're not supposed to carry the presence of God in the church just any old way we want, according to the way, you know, like what's cool now in marketing ideas and so forth. Uh, you know, the wheel is so cool, you know. Uh, <laughs> that Levi stuff, you know, they walked, they got beards. I mean, it's not that cool. And uh, so we want to be a hip and now church. We'll just keep it on the cart. So they 
decide to bring it up. Uh, the King James says the prescribed way. Uh, some translations say the due order or whatever. But they bring it up the correct way. And uh, David says, because you did not carry it, that is to the Levite speaking, the first time the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. Or King James says the due order NKJV says proper order, and so forth. Uh, one translation says according to the prescribed way, and so forth. So, uh, you know, the problem in America today is we think we can walk with God any old way we want, and the church can be any kind of organization uh, that it wants, and so forth, and that's just not so. The whole idea of becoming a Christian is to get delivered from your own self-determination. That's the essence of fallenness, is having it your way. You can have it your way if you still feel like God gives you the freedom to go to Burger King and eat that poison. But uh, then you can have it your way, but, but not at God's house. Not with uh, the real king, just the Burger King. Uh, so... The pattern idea, another example is in Exodus. Uh, 20, Exodus 25, 8, and 9 is quoted exactly in Hebrews 8, 5, and in Acts 7, 44, it's very clearly a New Testament concept. God tells Moses to make the tabernacle a very, very exact way with all kinds of details that most people go, I can't stand reading the Old Testament, it's so boring. And, and you know, and, uh, if I hear one more person say that, I think I'll just kiss them. But... Uh, um, so that I don't punch him uh, in, in the most loving way, of course. But uh, so uh, there, you know, over and over, God tells Moses to make it according to the pattern shown him on the mount. In Exodus 34, 35, 36, 37, 38, over and over, it says Moses made this, Moses made that, Moses made the other, exactly as the Lord showed him, just as the Lord showed him, just as the Lord showed him. And when they finally made everything exactly according to the pattern, exactly God's way, even though some of the ways to the natural mind seemed absurd, uh, then in the end, God... When they dedicated the temple, God filled it with his glory and his presence so much that the priest couldn't stand the minister. When was the last time people started leaving in the middle of worship because the intent, power of God was just too intense? I can't take it. <laughs> Can you turn that down a little bit, God? Uh, that's really what they experienced, as they did later with Solomon's temple. And we live in a better covenant the only way we're, reason we're not experiencing that is because we haven't been doing it God's way. The more we do it God's way, you know, more of us are starting to have this, the kind of experience Austin had, you know, he had grown up Baptist and da-da-da-da-da, and he came here and he said, wow, I've never experienced the presence of God like that. And I thought, you know, like there's a, such a thing called the corporate anointing. Churches with 100 people have a lot more anointing than churches with 10 in churches with a thousand people and so forth. And so, you know, to have a little church of 75 people and have the presence of God in such a way that someone could say, I never experienced the presence of God like this before. And, and uh, this, this is life-changing. This is different. This is new. Uh, so forth. Uh, that's because the more we do it God's way, the more he'll bless it with his presence. Simple as that. That's why we're constantly pioneering back to a more biblical way to do Christianity. And we will continue to change what, according to whatever God can opens our eyes to see. And there will never be a, well, we always did it this way. Um, not as long as I'm alive or John's alive or Jason's alive anyway. Maybe some pastor three generations from now. Well, we always did it this way. Uh, all right, so in the New Testament, it's clear that Christ becomes the tabernacle, then the church becomes the tabernacle, and there's a pattern for the church. It's clear also that Christ is our pattern, our model. And so what we got, you know, what we're supposed to do, what happened uh, around the turn of the last century, um, the last 50 years of the 1800s saw various uh, movements arise that basically said you get the Holy Spirit of conversion, but there's a deeper release and encounter of the Holy Spirit. 
that kind of was a stepping stone towards the Pentecostal movement, which was a stepping stone towards the charismatic movement in the 1960s through 80s. And in this whole concept of a greater release of the Holy Spirit. But as that hasn't developed, what almost 100% of Christians have not seen is God didn't just do that to give us more of his presence in worship, more power for casting out demons, uh, more power and conviction and witnessing and all the things that and so forth. But all of those are smaller subsets of the real reason he pours his spirit out is so that the Holy Spirit can lead us and guide us into all the truth. That has to be the goal all the time. Hear that. You've got to hear that. And so what's happened in uh, Pentecostalism, for the most part, is when you get the Holy Spirit, you get a greater desire for holiness. But if you don't change your paradigms to be more scriptural, you'll just get a greater desire for more legalistic holiness. And it actually became more unhealthy than the movements it came out of because it just took the unhealthy aspects of the movements it came out of and magnified them. And so one of the things the megachurch did is it kind of intuitively knew that, that all that legalism is bondage and so forth. But instead of getting a, a, a theology and a biblical theology of freedom, they just basically said, well, let's back off that a little and not be that intense. And so they are healthier, but they don't really exactly know biblically why they're healthier. So that's important. Okay. So... Um, When the spirit of truth comes, he leads us in the truth. So I have a statement here. We must reevaluate everything, not in a haughty, critical spirit, but in a comprehensive and constructive spirit. The mandate of the modern outpouring of the Holy Spirit is the restoration of all things. Acts 3.19, Peter and John speaking to the Sanhedrin say, uh, to repent and return to the Lord in order that God may send, send Jesus and talks about seasons of refreshment with the presence of the Lord. And then it talks about Jesus, whom heaven must retain until the period of the restoration of all things, which God started at Pentecost. And the ultimate goal of the outpourings of the Holy Spirit will be everything that was affected, starting in Genesis 3 of the fall of man, will be restored, and a kingdom will be prepared for Christ to come back to. This modern idea that it's going to get darker and darker and darker is a completely modern idea. No Christians believe that before around the 1870s to 1890s, what's called dispensational premillennialism. And, and Annie M, it's a twister, and it's going to get so bad. And, and, you know, let's protect our kids from life and reality. And, you know, all that stuff. Like, the, you know, the church is actually here to declare the kingdom and to press the crown rights of Jesus into every field of human endeavor, uh, but to do it God's progressive, inch by inch, ground is not soon lost way. So, now, that's all the introduction. <laughs> to uh, Let's talk a little bit about the five first steps of the kingdom, and I, we're going to be teaching these the next 20 or so weeks, so... Hopefully, I can just make some introductory con comments. Uh, you, first of all, understand the difference between average experience and biblical norms. Okay? We're living in a time of great darkness in the church. And so, almost every Christian you know, their experience is sub-biblical in ways that are, that, that are as you really start to take God and the Bible seriously, it'll blow your mind how much we're not seeing. All right. Uh, the vast majority of Bible-believing Western Christians have experienced only zero to three of these five things. And that's not normal or in the normative model. That's a sub-biblical model. Number two, living the Christian life in this contemporary average but sub-biblical condition can be compared to reading without knowing phonics or the alphabet or living with both severe mental and physical handicaps. It's hard enough to live with one or the other, but it's kind of living with both. All right, so the five things include receiving Jesus, which we just spent 23 weeks on. Again, 
That includes things about regeneration and things about conversion. I had a whole list of 10 questions I wanted to get to that will help us understand whether we're converted or not. Uh, secondly, water baptism. If uh, we have some teachings on the eight ingredients of all biblical covenants, uh, the fifth ingredient is ceremonies of celebration, ceremonies of enactment, renewal and remembrance. June 3rd, we're going to have a wedding, and these two are going to have a ceremony of enactment called a wedding. And we have water baptism is the ceremony of enactment into Christ and his church. And the Lord's Supper is a ceremony of reenactment and renewal, which is why no Christians didn't take weekly communion until modern times. The idea of taking communion once a month or twice a year or something is a completely modern idea because it doesn't understand the concept of renewing the covenant. On the first day of the week, we must renew the covenant together. There were actually some Anabaptists shortly after the Reformation who didn't take the communion every week. But it was not a, ever a big movement. Um, I wish I had time to explain baptismal regeneration. We don't believe in that. Uh, baptism is very important. There, there are some Protestant groups who believe you actually get born again when you're water baptized. And most Roman Catholics believe that water baptism regenerates you. But water baptism is a huge part of regeneration and conversion. But it's, it's a sign, seal, and ceremony of it that's, that's huge. But it's not itself what regenerates you. Christ, through the gospel and the Holy Spirit, regenerates you. That's important. Uh, there's a section of our podcast called messages on baptism some are from john some are from me there uh, about half of them are on water baptism and and uh we're a little bit unique in that um we uh, allow people to believe in either what's called believers baptism uh credo baptism it's called or ch child baptism or infant baptism called pedo baptism and uh when we started this church jason was the only one who believed in pedo baptism John converted to that opinion later, and then the two of them converted me. Uh, and so the elders of this church believe in infant baptism and, and so forth, and we believe that's actually biblical. But many of the people in our church, especially come out of Baptist and fundamentalist uh, backgrounds and so forth, and we're okay with whatever you believe. We're just not okay with thinking baptism is not that important. And... Uh, one of the things we believe very deeply is the traditional things that have divided the church since the Reformation, we are not willing to divide over. There's a whole list of subjects like that, including water baptism. I, I, you know, it's time for the church to quit dividing over those kind of, because there's something more bigger than that at stake, whether, whether we're right about questions about baptism. Third thing called being baptized in the Holy Spirit, that phrase is used seven times in the New Testament. It's clearly a greater increase of the power and presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. Jesus himself went through that. He was born of the Spirit. He always had the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit came on him like a dove at John's baptism, and he was led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil and came out in the power of the Spirit. Uh, we have podcasts. About this, we have a series that will take you through one-on-one, -on -one, but you need a greater feeling and encounter of the Holy Spirit, and you need that regularly, and that's a starting point in the Christian life, not a graduation day. And if you've been saved more than a week or two and you're not baptized in the Holy Spirit, you should pursue that quite forthwithly, if that's a word. I, try to make, I tend to make up words, I think. Um, Deliverance and healing. Notice the whenever gifts of healings are talked about in 1 Corinthians 12, the, the word for gifts and the word for healings are both plural. There's mental healing, spiritual healings, physical healings, emotional healings, and so forth. Um, that's not the, quite the same as reconciliation and so forth. And there are healings that come about from deliverance. Uh, Leah, Leah Gray is here. Leah Gray shared what, three or four weeks ago, about how around two years ago, 
Uh, some of the leaders of our church felt like uh, Leah needed deliverance from certain evil spirits, and that, and that when she got that deliverance, she would get healed of her asthma, and she was on like five asthma medications and had an inhaler with her all the time. And you've had no symptoms for about two years now, right, since that, since that day. Oftentimes, uh, various kinds of problems can be rooted in demonic spirits, and people who have experience with this kind of realm, you need their help, to, uh, but, but getting... Christians need deliverance all the time. I'm way out of time, so I can't explain why that is the case. We, there's, uh, that's one of the most messed up things in, in English-speaking Christianity is the King James mistranslated demonize from demonized or having demons live inside you to being demon-possessed. No one is demon-possessed, but uh, lots of people have demons. And uh, certain kinds of problems need deliverance from demons. And lastly, entering a New Testament lifestyle, that has two aspects, horizontal and vertical. And you can't have the horizontal part of the cross hold itself up unless it's planted in a vertical part. So the church, we have great community here and so forth, but the way into the church is through the door of Christ. And uh, as you come to know the full gospel and really encounter Christ fully, uh, you'll come into a whole different understanding of what Christian community is supposed to be about and never, never settle for going to church. Uh, that kind of mentality is like being sent into a war without any training or any gear. And you will get the crap kicked out of you in, by life. Uh, if all you have is the kinds of tools of grace that most of the church is offering its people today. You need all the tools of grace that the Bible brings to bear including a community-style discipling, very seriously studious, a non-religious, uh, zealous church uh, that where the people are really your friends and they love you and you love them. And uh, uh, you need spiritual disciplines. You need way more than quiet times. You need to have full encounters with the presence of God every day, sitting at his feet, studying his word, and to grow in the knowledge and experience of him. And uh, that's, that is what having a New Testament lifestyle is all about. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, the fellowship, and the prayers. Right after 3,000 of them came in on Pentecost. And most Christians are living like 10% of that life. And that's why they're not experiencing the abundant life that Christ came to give them. Amen.